Hello there, Adela Holmes. Hello there, Stefan. How are you? Well, very well, thank you. Hello to everyone out there in podcast land. Yes, hi, y'all. Do you like that southern accent? Yeah, I'm not sure where it came from because you are drinking tea at the moment and I expect you to be more English. came... Oh, oh, hello. (laughs) That's better. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Um, Well... um, Welcome to the Nightland Podcast, if you're a first-time listener. Uh, And if you're not, well, welcome back. We love the fact that you've returned to us. Um, And also, Adela, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Stefan. Even though it's March, because this is actually our first... the first one for the year. Our first one for 2016. Um, And... uh, Obviously, it's been very, very busy times, and we've managed to catch some time um, whilst we're both in the same place. Indeed. It's <laughs> actually quite rare that we're in the same place at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. It has, has been a really busy time, and this year we've been doing more work with schools than usual. Um, and, and, you know, that's been fantastic to um, continue to develop that program and the kind of support that we're giving to schools and um, in amongst that obviously there's been our our programs in North Queensland where you have been. I have been. Working in Cairns, Rockhampton. Cairns, Rockhampton, Townsville mm-hmm. and Mackay. And, and soon to pop off to Mackay for yes, a visit, yes. yes. Uh, and uh, we just had a lovely seminar in Hobart last week. Um, a fantastic group of people there and I must say a shout out to David Page who provided a projector for us. <laughs> Thank you very much David. Um, do you know we had such a diverse group of people in that seminar in Hobart. We had the, the kinds of professions we expect usually Mm. we had welfare workers social workers and um, youth workers um, foster carers and we had one uh, one woman who was a marine biologist oh yes you told me about that (laughs) I I was quite impressed with that uh, line of thinking that she had in terms of why she'd come to the seminar well she told us that she had come to the seminar because she was um, becoming involved in a community development project in East Timor and she wanted to understand the impact of trauma mm. better. So I'd, I thought that was um, really lovely actually to have her I there. agree. And very um, interesting that she understood the potential for trauma, oh, encountering abs- trauma there. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's fantastic. Um, when I was explaining the neurobiology, of course, I was really aware that I had a, bio, a, a biology, <laughs> biology scientist. Yes, but she's in the probably room. more experienced with fish. With fish, yes, yes, yes. yes. I had to say, well, if if it seems like I've got this wrong, it's because it's really difficult. We don't work with fish. <laughs> there could be a market in us working with traumatized fish. Mm. There's plenty of them. I've people, seen them people, on the pier. People who have got away from sharks. Well, not people. Uh, fish. <laughs> fish who have escaped. Yeah. And look at Nemo. That's a lovely story mm. of a traumatised little fish. It is. The I Enough have, dribble. 
Enough yeah. drivel. <laughs> well, we've been so busy and kind of, you know, in some ways overwhelmed by the the um, support that we've been providing to schools and the, um, the the amount of consultation that has been requested of us from schools mm. um, and what they deal with. I, I think that I, I thought it might be a good idea for us to talk about um, taking a trauma-informed approach in the classroom because, of course, we're often talking about taking this approach in the home um, an approach taken by parents and carers and, and youth workers in the home all one-on-one. But mm. obviously things become quite complex once there's a, a classroom with another 25 children. Mm. And when you look at the prevalence of childhood trauma, it is surprising that we're not required to step in more frequently than currently we are. Because there are many, many children Mm. who struggle to maintain any sort of um, calmness within a classroom setting as a result of post-traumatic stress disorder arising from developmental trauma. And it is not an area that is well catered for within existing structures. I think that there's another thing there, aside from the fact that people don't actually realise that we are here. Mm. Um, because the first thing that principals say to me is usually, how come I didn't know about you mm. before? Mm. Um, I think partly there's that. And also there's a little bit of, as we've often talked about, a paradigm shift. There's a different understanding yes. of the, these behaviours that arise from trauma. And um, and that is taking a while to make its way to becoming adopted by d- different sectors, mm. in- including education, I think. I think one of the um, blessings or curses, I'm not actually quite sure which, of being quite old and having been in the field for a very long time... You're not that old. Well, old enough, 43 years, I mean, my goodness. Anyway... One of the advantages of that... Have you been in the field 43 years? I have been in the field 43 years. I was years. three years old when you started. Correct. So just respect, <laughs> thank you very much. I always do. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, so going back to what I was saying, um, I can remember a time when most schools had a guidance person working within them or a psychologist or some person who would actually provide on-site assistance to teachers but the sa- and and that became eroded in the 90s but the sad thing about that is that that did not coincide with our, with the knowledge about developmental trauma and its impacts so had the two been co-occurring there might have been a very different development within schools but of course those roles were long gone when understandings of trauma started to develop yes because i mean at the moment i can tell you that there is a really diverse 
allocation of resources mm. when it comes to student well-being in schools. Mm. What we come across is that sometimes there is a full-time qualified social worker. There are the psychologists who are um, employed by the Department of Education themselves. Sometimes there is a part-time or full-time uh, well-being coordinator who might be a qualified person or might be a teacher of something else taking on other duties. And sometimes there's also reliance on... And there is, at the moment, a bit of debate uh, surrounding the chaplaincy program. Mm. Um, but, of, of course, the, 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 the problem there when it comes to a trauma-informed approach or when it comes to those children and those young people who are behaving the way that they are or missing school for reasons um, that that are grounded in, in their early trauma. And that is not understood, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, there seems to me, within the alternative educational options, a very strong reliance on behaviour modification and cognitive behavioural approaches, all of which, both of which, are fine where there is not developmental trauma. So if you're dealing with a behavioural issue that has occurred within the parenting style relating to a child, but there is no trauma, they may work fine. Mm. Mm. They sadly do not work, and in fact they're counterproductive, with children who've experienced developmental trauma. And I think that those children, from what we've seen, are the children who are taking up yeah. 80% of the time. A exactly. small percentage of the yeah. school population yeah. taking up a large, a large percentage, percentage of the of time, time, right? And mm-hmm. resource as well. Yeah. And, you know, the, the teacher's attention mm. within the class on a daily basis. Which, which yeah. comes also back to that. Uh, it must be such an amazing challenge for teachers, mm. right? You've Absolutely. got this attention is. being pulled by one child. Mm. You've got another 25 that also need mm. your attention. And you've got the, the attitudes of parents of the mm. other 25 to the amount of time that's being spent on one or two mm. children. Now, often we have been um, assisting um, schools and you know the staff in the school to understand better, and I, I think that that's been really welcomed by the staff and um, you know the the teachers that we've been working with are really incredible people. You know that's a job that I I, I don't think I would do, <laughs> um, and they do an amazing job of actually integrating this approach mm. into their day to day work and I can see the challenges that they have there we normally when we start working with a school we usually get very similar questions one of the questions that we get is well this approach is going to be very different for this child and the other children are going to see this different approach what will I say to them what will I say to them when I respond differently to their behaviour mm. than I do to, mm. you know, to inappropriate behaviours from the other children. 
And that that's a common question. Mm. For good reason. Well, it is for good reason. Mm. I mean, that's a source of tension. <clears throat> but I guess the way I see it is that, firstly, it is a problem, but is it is a separate problem to the one of how we're going to create change in that child, mm. right? We're not going to create change using traditional behaviour modification, or not positive change anyway, right? Mm. So we are going to create positive change if we take a trauma-informed approach because we have the data, we have the evidence. So then you have a separate problem. How are we going to deal with the social dynamic in the classroom mm. of treating someone differently? Mm. Or responding to them in a different way. And part of that problem, I mean, there is certainly the social issues and the issues of parity and issues of how the school relates to the parents of the other 25 or 30 children in the class. But we also then come face to face with some of the deeply held policies or beliefs Mm -hmm within the education system around the non-exclusion, and I'm, I'm using mm-hmm. those parentheses in the air again that I often do, um, of children from a classroom. And one of the things that I've seen over the 43 years that I have worked in all settings where inclusion is held as a value if you like, higher than any other, is that it actually seems to work counterproductively for the children about who it's being talked about. Because, of course, all children have a right to be included in normal day-to-day activities. Given. That's a given. There's no question about that. But in order to be involved in those activities, they actually have to be able to do that without excluding themselves. and Eventually. Without um, sabotaging themselves and without stigmatising themselves. Now, of course, when they do those things, they don't do those things because they want to. They do those things because of their trauma. And because these are children who are walking in the world daily with a subtype of post-traumatic stress disorder. So the fact that Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and his associates were unsuccessful in getting developmental trauma disorder included into the DSM-5 as a subcategory of PTSD does not alter the fact that it exists. And that's what all these children suffer from. Sadly, they are not able to actually be formally diagnosed with that because it's not a formal diagnostic category. But if we look at them as if as if it was, then you see that what these children do through no fault of their own is they live out daily. PTSD. Now, if that child suffered PTSD because they'd been standing up the road from 9-11, everybody would say, oh, oh, of course, they're traumatised from that. 
So we must develop something that meets their needs. But sadly, these children have been traumatised by their lives and by subtleties within their lives that are not easy to see. And from that, I think, comes this intense discomfort. Oh, but we don't want to exclude children. Well, of course we don't. But we also want to find a way of including them that works. And we could probably, I mean, I would suggest that it's the way we see inclusion that rather it being the the thing that we have to do is to include, if mm. we see it as our indicator of success. Yes. When we are doing successful work with this child, we will actually see increased inclusion. Of course we increased will. Capacity in, in, for ca- inclusion. Capacity to be yeah. part of mm. and to be engaged. Um, so I, I think... I mean, in the programs that we have been developing with schools um, in the last couple of years, we've seen that at times we have to do some one-on-one work Mm. and we do some work with the classroom and with the other children together. Mm. So that often depends on the capacities and if there is an aid available or a therapeutic classroom worker Mm. available. And you seize your opportunity to do work with the rest of the children in the classroom when you can do it in a way that is real and is most likely to have success because nothing builds success like success. Yeah. <laughs> and and once children start to see a child with some issues in a new way, their prior experience just dissolves. And I think that there is another effect there because I go back to what we were starting to address, which is um, people's question Mm. around, but what about what other children will think and what I say to them? Mm. Because in all honesty, our experience has been that this is often an anxiety that comes from school staff at the beginning of the time that we work with them. Mm. But it's not actually a, a thing that we see a lot of. No, it's, it's, it's what not they something anticip- that's re- yeah. No, that's correct. They're anticipating yeah. it's going to happen. Mm. But actually I think what happens is that other children who are normally quite vigilant themselves around the behaviour of this peer of theirs mm. in the classroom, mm. right, that suddenly they have found it to be slightly easier Mm. so rather than thinking like we anticipate they're going to be we think they're going to be thinking social justice well Mm. it's unfair but actually they're thinking geez it's been easier in the classroom (laughs) lately (laughs) yes that's quite like and and it's like a lot of times children actually know that something's not quite right Mm. and they know that you are dealing with it and you're not dealing with it in a way that's, you know, asking for for retribution or punishment mm. of some sort, but they can see a difference and they can relax. And I think also, I mean, if we're talking philosophically, if we want, well, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the media of late about schools teaching how not to bully other children mm. and how not to be judgmental about other children. If we truly want to build into our children compassion for others, then compassion is based on understanding. Yeah. So, 
Yes, of course we have to think about things like privacy legislation. That's a given. But within that, if you can see something but you don't understand it as a child in a school, it's much harder for you to develop compassion for that person than if you do understand it. And schools could, in my opinion, cover themselves quite simply by having some a couple of sentences in their school rules or philosophy that says something like, this is a school that practices compassion and yeah. models compassion to its students. Where children are experiencing difficulties for a variety of reasons, we will take a compassionate and individualised approach to meet the needs of that young person. It's interesting. Simple. Yesterday I was at a school and the teachers actually said to me, one of them said to me, do you know we've actually become more compassionate? Hmm. Because the thing is that they now understand the source of the behaviour. Hmm. They no longer see it as hmm. a personal affront to exactly. them. Right? Um, or an intentional display of disrespect. Hmm. They actually now understand where it's coming from. Hmm. And I think what happens is that modelling of compassion happens inadvertently. Because, yeah, of course. You know, the, the teachers are feeling more understanding and yep. more compassionate because right. they now know what is happening mm. and other children sense that. Like, other children mm. always sense those That's things. Correct. Right? And and one of the things that I have been quite passionate about for a very, very long time is the fact that children with developmental trauma are very easily misunderstood. So are adults. You know, you work with a homelessness population and you will see dozens of adults who are living with the impacts of unresolved childhood trauma. Our society isn't very compassionate towards them either. No. It's very no. judgmental. They cross the road. You know, somebody looks a bit, ooh, a bit dirty and people get instantly fearful. Mm. Whereas if you actually go to a person who is begging in the street and say, have you eaten this morning? I'd like to buy you something to eat. Because often they can't go in a shop Mm -hmm. because the state they're in. Um, As I have done many times, um, one guy said to me, oh, I'm starving. (laughs) I was like, you're talking to me like a person. And I said, what would you like? He said, can you get me a cheesy mite scroll? So I went to the Baker's Delight that was a few doors away, bought him a cheesy mite scroll, gave it to him. He didn't ask me for any money as well, but he had been treated with compassion. Yeah. And we don't do that enough in our society. We fling a bit of money at homeless people and we think that's all right. It's not all right because we have to model, model compassion to people whose disability and I use those parentheses in the air, people whose disability is not that obvious. Yeah, when it's less visible, it's it's obviously more difficult to understand. And when we don't understand, we're trying to protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe rather than being compassionate. Mm. When teachers say to us, well, what will I say to the other kids when they say, we all have to do this, he doesn't have to, that's Mm. unfair... Mm. 
in a way, I think that children do pick up on compassion. Indeed. And at least that they know that even if they don't understand, they know that you understand. Yeah. Or exactly. they know that the teacher mm. understands. They have mm. a knowing about that. In a similar way, when you say that sometimes when a disadvantage is visible, for example, if a child in the classroom uh, was in a wheelchair mm. because... Uh, the child's legs... Some kind of physical disability. uh, ...working. Mm. If that child is in a wheelchair, no child Mm. and no adult would ever say, how come when we play basketball he gets to sit down (laughs) Mm. and we all have to play basketball Mm. standing up? Mm. No. Nobody's going to ask that, are no. they? Nobody will, and that's because the terrib- it's not a matter yeah. of social justice. Exactly, and that's a thing. That's a, one of the really complex elements of developmental trauma disorder, and why it is so important that eventually it does get recognised, because it's an actual phenomenon. I think it's one of the reasons that. When one of the things I love about just when we are running training and and uh, talking to people about this uh, when we do consultations, especially in the seminars, there seems to be a lightness always by the end of the day, where people feel, I know that they feel this because I felt this when I learnt this stuff. You actually feel empowered. Yeah. And lighter because now you can do something. Mm. Now you can do. You don't. You no longer feel despair that nothing you can do with this kid, mm. and he's probably going to leave school early, and we're just going to have to mm. do what we can for now while he's in the classroom. Because all of a sudden, you think, mm. actually, mm. this child's going to be okay. Yeah, as the you know we've referred to this several times over previous podcasts, as the Verso evaluation of therapeutic residential care showed. There are many things you can do and there are many ways of working with such young people that work and bring about change. So, yes, great lightness because Mm. there's something that can be done. Yeah, suddenly we can Mm. do something. Mm. But to get back to talking about the work that Nightlamp has been doing in schools... Uh, some of the listeners to the podcast might not know yeah. exactly what it is yep. you're referring to, Stefan. Well, what we are doing with schools at the moment, we create a, a close partnership with the school and we don't just work with that child. Um, and sometimes we work with the school as a whole. Some, sometimes it is about one child. Um, and when we work with that one child, what that means is providing training and knowledge for all the staff at the school not only that child's teacher then we we provide ongoing coaching and consultation to that child's teacher to the child's parent or carer as well to make sure that everyone is working together and um, we find that they always have to be involved and it's always far stronger if they're involved 
sometimes we have one of our workers or sometimes we coach one of the school's aides to know what to do therapeutically moment by moment when they are with the child. So then we might also assist with setting up the classroom and a quiet space and the day-to-day routine. So what do you say to the child? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? What activities do we need in order to begin to actually facilitate the reorganisation of the brain, Mm. which is actually really what we're doing. So in that space, sometimes we might recommend certain somatosensory activities or equipment, swings, rocking chairs, those sorts of activities that uh, are likely to assist with regulation. And ways to prevent or reduce crises or incidents and things, uh, ways to respond to that crisis if it happens mm. and what to do afterwards. Um, it, it's been, the, the, the results, I mean, it really sounds like I'm plugging our program, I am, but I'm also feeling so incredibly proud of everyone involved in this program and of the teachers in the schools that we're working with and the amazing work that they're doing. I mean, yesterday, if you recall, I contacted you when mm. I left one of the schools because being the sook that I am, I was almost in tears at um, the success that we were having with one of the... with a little boy that we had previously thought, or others had previously thought, maybe there's nothing that can be done. And to see him change and become more relational, to be able to relate to other children, to teachers, and to actually want to go into a classroom, sit in it, and, and do a test. Mm. I mean, this this kid actually previously would never have done that. And so, you know, we've it, it hasn't been easy. You know, it's always a hard road, Mm. but it's a hard road that always pays off because we see them getting better, Mm. um, and they always do. But it it has to begin with everyone in that school staff group um, taking this on and uh, and at least being willing to be open enough to learn a new way of understanding these children. Mm. And and, and what we find is that um, school staffing groups and you know teachers are mm. always on board with it mm. i mean they they love having more tools and more knowledge mm. um and they're really very good at it because mm. they're used to w- working with children mm. so we've been uh, very very happy with how that's going mm. um, and it's uh, the years kicked off with quite a number of yes children uh, that um are being worked with yes yes which is good Absolutely. The word Um, spreading, that there is a program out there that can actually provide that on-the-ground support um, intensively. That's right. If you're listening and you work with a school um, and you feel exasperated with a child or or, or children at your school, just contact us. Um, Let us know. We'll come to the school and we'll have a chat and we will see if it's something that we can help with. We will always let you know if it's something that we can't do. <laughs> I'm not, you know, but where we can, I know that we can. Mm. I, I, I know it can be done because we, we, we just need the right approach. Yeah. And I think, um, if I can say this, one of the sad reflections is that the resources to do 
this is are not always available. No. Um, and Night Lamp is a fee-for-service yep. arrangement. It's a business, but it is not a profit-making business as such. No. Nope. And <laughs> never, it never has been. Well, I hope it is one day. <laughs> well, it'd be nice. But because we can sustain more programs then. But I think that that's an important thing to say, and I'm probably better place to say it than you are because it's your business. Yeah. Um, but I think that what really needs to be understood is that in other countries of the world, I've, I don't think I've said this on a podcast before, mm-hmm. but in other countries of the world, in the UK, in America, Canada, probably other countries too, FIFA service, welfare services are very common but they seem to be viewed with great suspicion here. And I'm not quite sure what is the reason for that. But, um, for example, since we're talking about schools, there is in the UK a brilliant school Mm. called the Mulberry Bush School. I've been there twice to look at what they do and just breathe it in (laughs) because it's fantastic. They are a fee-for-service service. It's a private school. And local authorities, which are like the equivalent of our state government child protection service, uh, pay for certain children who have exhausted all the other opportunities in their local areas to go to that school. It has a fixed fee. Children stay there for three years. And they, I must say, what I observed when I was there, and people may or may not be aware of a DVD about that school's operations called Hold Me Tight, Let Me Go. But if you make it your business to look at that, you will see pretty much what we do in Mm. schools. Mm. Um, And I was really quite excited. The first time I went to see the Mulberry Bush was when I was managing Hurstbridge Farm. And it was so affirming in terms of many of the things that we were doing there because this predated the evaluation done by Verso. I walked away thinking, hey, (laughs) we do that. Um, And they are a very compassionate school. They're very well resourced because they charge an appropriate fee for what they know they have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're completely trauma-informed and also informed by psychodynamic theory, as is our work. Um, And when you understand that there are other services in other places in the world that operate on a fee-for-service basis and produce terrific results, there's nothing sinister about it. I I think in the past it's been tied together because social work came from a socialist kind of... Yes, yes, I I wonder if that's it. And and I think that, um, you know, it's been tied with the new right and the, Mm. you know, the free market being... Mm you know, looked at with suspicion. But as I've always said, I invite people Hmm. to look through our accounts (laughs) and I invite them to donate as well. (laughs) Uh, We have existed on, um, you know, personal subsidy. That's that's how we exist. We're unfunded, but um, we also enjoy 
the um, the the freedoms of being able to respond very quickly because of being hmm. a small fee for service and service, and yeah. in an open ended way because many funded programs have a finite period of involvement. We can continue working hmm. and continue the relationships hmm. with our clients, with schools, and hmm. with with families. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful freedom to have. Hmm. Um, well, I, I I guess you know it's a short discussion on. On the schools, um, I you know there are always challenges in introducing a new paradigm. Obviously, you know mm. there's the challenge of dealing with what children say, but there's also what other parents think and say because you know people don't fully understand what is happening. But there's always a way to do it. There are schools that we have worked with who deal with this in a becoming quite expert at dealing with the mm. school population on it and uh, and on doing a, a fantastic job. Um, so I'd, I guess we'll wrap it up oh. here. Adela, we have some um, lots of work to do today. Yes. Um, and toddling uh, off somewhere soon to yes. do some reflective space. Yes, yes. And I, I will plug, if, actually, if you're listening, we do have some uh, seminars which are open to the public coming up um, we charge a relatively low fee per person for $135 so I think is, a, is around a half of what you'll, seminar. what you'll find um, it's a day seminar uh, we start at 10am till 4pm the next one in Victoria is right here in Moralbark on the 17th of March uh, on understanding and and, uh, and and understanding what goes into healing with childhood trauma. Um, that has been very successful in the past. And we're also uh, running again the last very successful um, seminar that we ran on self-care and vicarious trauma, understanding vicarious trauma. That is on the 18th of March in Victoria. And I will be going to Perth and we'll be running a, a day seminar in... Uh, understanding and healing childhood trauma um, and that will be on the 24th of March in Perth uh, so other dates soon to be revealed as we intend to be going to Queensland um, especially in the Gold Coast and, and Brisbane uh, and also we will be returning to Hobart because I've, you know, we've already had some requests following our last mm trip to Hobart and possibly Launceston and Burnie. So it's been mm. very, very busy mm. with, and, with that. And also not to leave out country areas of Victoria, which you've been travelling to, Stefan. Oh, we, mm. we just went to Lakes Entrance mm. and had a wonderful seminar there with um, just such a, a, an amazing bunch of people working out in, a, in, in regional Victoria. Mm. So um, we will be running more of those. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast time. Thank you, Adela, and thank you to all our listeners, and uh, you'll hear from us. Sooner sooner than <laughs> since the last one. <laughs> Next time. Bye-bye See now. See you later. <laughs>